Every morning, I have the incredible privilege of making my wife coffee. And uh, the other morning, I go and I prepare. It's quite a, can I say ritual? It's quite a ritual for me. I, I get to go in. I get to concentrate on what I'm doing. To make a good cup of coffee takes attention. I think one of the things that I enjoy about it is you can't have your mind elsewhere. Otherwise, it just you make a bum cup of coffee. And, uh, and so just being really present, uh, go to open the fridge, get some milk out, open up the lid, and you know what comes. That whiff that tells you this milk ain't going into that coffee. Not to worry. Some of you know we have quite a large family, and so we normally have more than one bottle of milk in the fridge. So uh, I pour that one down the drain, open up the second one. All good. Coffee's still on track. Open up the lid. That's also not good. Don't worry. We happen to have three bottles of milk in our fridge. For those that don't know, I have seven children, five growing boys. And so milk is an important part of their diet. And uh, open up the third thinking, I can finally make my wife some coffee. That is not good. And all I can do in that moment is cry out to Eskim and say, can you not just provide me with consistent electricity so that my fridge does not get warm and my milk go off? Oh, just to long for the good life of having coffee in the morning. <laughs> I think in the human heart is this oftentimes desire just for things to be a little bit better. Use a silly example of milk and, uh, and coffee. But in the grand scheme of things, maybe there are some in this room who have enjoyed and tasted the delight of the gift of God in marriage, only to find that a few years later, it hasn't resulted in that goodness, and the marriage has ended. Maybe you have landed that job that you have been praying for, and you finally find yourself in that position where you think you're going to have financial security, only to find a few months later you are made redundant or retrenched. Maybe you long to make a particular sports team only to find that you are not selected. Or you trust for a certain result and you don't get that result. Part of our world is dealing with a heart that longs for things just to be perfect just to be good, I was going to say again. The reality is we are all born into brokenness. We're born into a world where there's just this, this knowledge within us that things could be better. We, we see humanity at its best, some case being showcased, and we kind of go, look at that. And then on the other hand, we see sometimes humanity displaying its ugliness and we go, how can we live in the context? How can we live with this dichotomy of having both this incredible beauty as well as this incredible pain and brokenness? And yet that is the world that we live in. And so we have glimpses of what a beautiful life could look like. We have glimpses because we're made in the image of God. We, we know something of the taste of the eternal and the divine. And yet we all fall short of the glory of God because of our own brokenness and sinfulness. And we even within our own, the darkness within our own hearts, we taste and see something that we wish we could get away from. And so this question, this yearning of our troublesome heart, this, the darkness that presses in on us, both externally and internally, 
and we just long for something better. Jesus has a moment like that with his friends. The scriptures call them the disciples, but I think sometimes for us, we just, it's better if we can just say Jesus was hanging with his friends. And he has a moment where he's aware that one of his friends is about to betray him. Maybe you've lived in an environment of the, you had a friend and it turned sour and you can't quite put your finger on why. Jesus had this moment. And the scriptures talk around, uh, around Jesus having a troubled heart. And he's talking to his friends and he's saying, friends, I'm about to go. And where I'm going, you can't come. And his disciples are a bit confused. They, they don't, they, they're kind of being a bit troubled and not troubled. And, and then in the end of John chapter 13, where we read this, it, it has a very interesting uh, little few words. And it says, it was dark outside. Then we go into chapter 14, and we're going to read from this text today. And uh, I'm kicking off a series that we're going to be in for the next couple of weeks uh, called the I Am Sayings of Jesus. Jesus referenced himself to as a number of things. And he said, I am this, I am this, I am this. And we're going to look at some of those and what that means for us. He was speaking that to the people that were around him. But we know that all of Scripture has been given to us to show us and introduce us to this person of Jesus and to, that we may know who he is. And so we come into this John chapter 14 moment, and it's recorded from verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, so believe in me also. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas, who we, we know from the Scriptures as doubting Thomas, and there were a couple of occasions like this where he pops in and he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. I can picture Jesus in this moment like, hey, hey Philip, I've just told you. If you know me, you know the Father. You've seen him. Philip like many of us, the typical human condition is we, we don't listen in order to understand. We listen in order to respond. And so in this moment, Philip just responds, show us the way to the Father, and that'll be enough for us. Show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing His work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Thomas says, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus had been with them for three years and showing them about the love of the Father. He was the fulfillment of the prophets and the Torah, the, the writings of the ancient fathers of our faith. 
Jesus had been with them for three years, and still they did not understand. These were the men closest to Jesus who had walked with them, and he says, we don't know where you're going. Show us the way. And I think Thomas here represents actually every human heart. We don't know the way. We don't know where we're going. Will you just show us? Will you be able to just show us that we can order our steps? At best, we're shooting in the dark. The context of this, I think, is so important for us to understand. Here's Jesus in a moment. He's having dinner with his friends. His heart is troubled because someone's about to betray him. He is, uh, he's obviously aware that it's the night that he is about to be arrested and go to the cross so that we may all find our freedom and life through him and through his life. And so he's in that moment, and it says, it was dark outside. And then Jesus says, my soul is troubled. And so Jesus was practically experiencing darkness from the outside and darkness on the inside at one moment. And this is what he encourages his disciples with, his friends. He says, don't be troubled. Though it be dark outside, though it be dark inside, don't let your hearts be troubled. Why? Because I am. Because I am. And so Jesus' invitation to us today is, though it be dark outside, though it be dark inside, I hope you're getting that reference. Though there be trouble in our hearts, though there be trouble externally pressing in on us, Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. It's okay. I've got it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so there is an invitation today to all of us to know Jesus that we may know the Father. This is what Jesus is speaking, us, speaking into us. And he starts with this, I am. And uh, the Greek scholars uh, will tell us that it is, it's a very intense form of the words I am. So Jesus doesn't use words like we would use when we say, I am going to the shop. I am tired. I am hungry. I am, it's a different. He says this intense form where I am means I and only I am. In fact, he uses the same words that God uses when he introduces himself to Moses when he says, I am. It's why the Jews, right in that moment when Jesus says, I am, the way, the truth, and the life, they weren't interested in what came after the I am. The fact that Jesus said, I am, was enough for them to pick up stones to stone him because they knew in that moment Jesus was defining himself as God. And so we're doing this series, I am, and why I've just taken a moment to explain the intensity of this I am to us is everything that comes after the I am comes from the preface. It comes from this, that Jesus is equating himself to God and saying, I and only I am. I and only I am. And so when he says, don't let your hearts be troubled, it's not a generic term. It's saying you don't have to because I and only I am the way the truth, and the life. And this invitation comes to us. So we're going to just look at what Jesus, uh, not in totality, I could never pretend to do that, but just look at the way, the truth, and the life. And what do these statements mean? What, what is something that we can take away today to know Jesus so that we may know the Father? Because that's what Jesus says in this. He says, you, you know me, and therefore you know the Father. And so we, we start here with the way. 
I'm not sure if any of you are familiar with any of the terminology around climbing Mount Everest. So uh, there is an important person that goes in your tour party called a Sherpa. And a Sherpa is a local person that has grown up on the mountains, knows it in every day of the year, what the weather conditions are doing, just knows that mountain inside and out. And so a critical component piece of you summiting Everest is having a Sherpa or multiple Sherpas on your team. Because what the Sherpa does is this. They tell you, ah, oh, you have a plan, you have a route planned out. I'm telling you the weather has changed. That route no longer is the route. This is the way we're going to go. You can stubbornly stick to your route. You'll most likely find yourself dying. The Sherpa knows what route to take given what conditions he is faced with. The Sherpa also happens to be that guy that carries your burden. Okay? He carries your, your backpack. He makes your lot a whole lot easier and lighter. And I love the fact that he is a local. He knows the environment. And so when Jesus says, I am the way, I'm so conscious that a, a human example never does our God justice. But if you can work with me on this, Jesus is, is, is kind of saying, I am the Sherpa. I'm not your 10-step list of how to get to the top of Everest. I am the guy that knows where you are, who you are, where you live, what your family DNA is, what you've experienced. I know all of that, and I can get you to the destination, the Father. But you have to attach yourself to me, because weather conditions will change. Will you attach yourself to me? I'm the local, Jesus says. I'm the guy that knows heaven. You think you know heaven. I'm the guy that knows heaven. I can lead you in the culture of this environment of Mount Everest. I'm, I'm mixing the stories. You get it. There are multiple, multiple stories of climbers who have tried to climb Everest to get to the top without a Sherpa. And unfortunately, Mount Everest is littered with human remains of those that did not make it because they tried to do it in their own strength. Climbers, I, I just did a brief search of guys that have climbed Everest the most. And all of them, they were asked the question, the most important thing you can take on your trip. To a man, they said the Sherpa. I am the way. I'm not a way. I'm not a 10-step program. I am the way. Attach yourself to me and we will make it to the Father. You don't have to know the 10 steps. You don't have to know the weather conditions. You don't have to know any of that. All you have to do is keep your head focused on me, hook yourself to my belt, and I will get you to your destination. That is what Jesus is saying when he says, I am the way. John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40. Jesus is talking to uh, a group of Pharisees in this context but he has multiple contests like this through the Scriptures. And he says this, You study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And so what Jesus is saying in this moment is he's, he's kind of saying, Hey guys, the Scriptures are important, but you don't lose sight of the fact of what they're there for. They're there to point to me. You can quote every scripture verbatim. 
You can have it all down. You can quote the Psalms. You can quote the, the, the helpful rules of Proverbs or the helpful principles of Proverbs. You can have it all down. If you don't know Jesus, you're not going to make it to the Father. Religion doesn't get us to the Father. Jesus does. And that's why he can say, don't let your hearts be troubled. External darkness, internal darkness, don't let your souls be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. I am the way. Just hold on to me. Just hold on to me. When Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, it's recorded in Matthew chapter 17. That's kind of big language to say this, that Jesus had a moment with Peter and John, two of his closest mates, where he revealed his true self to them. And he's up on this mountain, and in this moment, in this cloud, Peter and John see Jesus standing there with Moses and Elijah. And God in that moment says, this is my son, listen to him. What did Peter and John experience? Why is it recorded in the Scriptures? So Moses represents the fathers of our faith. It represents the Torah, or the, in, in the Jewish custom, the, the first five books of the Bible, the, the law, the, everything that pointed to the holiness of God and the goodness of God. And so Moses represented that, but, uh, but he was held in very high esteem. What does Elijah represent? He, he represents all the prophets that spoke over Israel, that spoke about God. And people hold to the prophets, but... What God does in this moment is He says, both Moses, the Torah, the law, and the Elijah, the prophets, they all point to my son Jesus. You're studying all of this stuff, but you're missing Jesus. You're studying your maps to get to the top of Everest. You're missing the Sherpa. You're missing the guy that's actually going to get you there. And God says, this is my son. Listen to him. Not to Moses, not to Elijah. Listen to him. And so there's this reordering, there's the establishment of who Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, that He is the one. He is the way. And so when Jesus says, do not fear, I and only I am the one that can get you through internal darkness and external darkness and land you with the Father. Hang on to me. Hang on to me. He goes onto the truth. I am the truth. And there's a story in Mark chapter 4, which uh, gives account of uh, Jesus and, the, and, and his friends, and they've been ministering, and they've been helping people, and then it's time for them to go to a, another place, and they get on a boat, and they go, and Jesus is obviously knackered from all of his work, and so he falls asleep. I, I would love to be Jesus. Uh, just the, the ability to live in complete peace and fall asleep whenever you're tired uh, would be a dream. Oh, we long for the good life. Uh, but Jesus falls asleep in the boat, and up comes a storm. Now, we're talking, about, we're talking about guys that were fishermen for a living, okay? Let's remember that, that, that at least four of the disciples were fishermen for a living. And so they understood boats. They understood the sea. They understood wind and waves. They understood all of that. These were the most competent guys of that time when it comes to sea and, and, and storms. And what was their experience they cried out, and they said, we are going to die. And they go to Jesus, Jesus, don't you care about us? We are going to die. Their truth as experienced, skillful fishermen who understood sea and waves and wind and boats, their experience was, we are going to die. And Jesus wakes up and says, come on, guys. Have a little bit of faith. 
storm, calm down, let's carry on. And the disciples fall down, face down. Who is this man that speaks to the wind and the waves? And they die down. And so when Jesus says, I am, I and only I am the truth, we have to understand that from our vantage points, we only know in part and see in part. And we've got to be very careful to say that we know the truth. Because there is one, Jesus, the God-man, who knows truth, who is truth. Some of you may remember, but I'm also conscious that there are many in this room who, who weren't here when Jack's preached the message, but she, this particular message, but she had a, a tin uh, gas kettle on the stage. And uh, she was speaking about how a group of people are on this side and they can see the handle and the lid and a certain color, and the handle was a different color to the rest of it. And then there were a group of people on this side and they could see the spout, which was a different color to the handle. And there's this argument between two people who are both arguing for their truth. I can see a spout. It looks like this. I can see a handle. It looks like this. Both of them not really wrong. But Jesus, who oversees everything, says, hold on, guys. What you haven't noticed is that it actually it's a kettle. You're both partly right, but not fully right. And so in this moment, the disciples, who are, who are, who are again, expert fishermen, they're looking, and they're looking naturally, and they're saying, we are going to die under this, these weather conditions. And Jesus says, partly true. You don't have the greater truth that I am able to stop the wind and the waves. I am able to create and recreate. I am able to change all things. What is impossible for you is possible for me, Jesus says. Proverbs chapter 14 verse 12 says this, says this, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. This was written by Solomon, the, the wisest guy ever to have lived. God gave him, graced him with incredible wisdom. And he says, actually, when we make things, when we choose our own path, when we make decisions, out of our own reality and truth. It leads to death. But Jesus says, I am the truth. So what Jesus does is he, he confronts us as a, as a fellow human. He confronts us. His humanity confronts our humanity. Because in Him, we see all that we are not. And we see all that we are. And we see the effect of sin in our own lives, our own brokenness, the darkness within us, we see when we are held up to Him. And so Jesus comes as the truth of who humanity really is. And the invitation that God gives to us as humans to participate in the divine and the eternal life. I am the truth. One of the ways or a modern way of saying that today is this. Own your own truth. Live your truth. You heard that? Can I say as a pastor, please don't do that. Please don't do that. The way of our own truth only leads to death. Jesus is the truth. Let's move on to the life. And this starts with uh, the story of the Genesis creation account. And so God creates, uh, creates this world and he puts this beautiful garden at the center of it. And uh, he puts the tree of life in the center of that with the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And from there, four rivers flow, east, west, north, south. 
And so there's just life flowing from the center of this garden. And God is habitating there. God is living there. It's God's house. Is there. And he, he creates Adam. And then he, he separates Adam in two. And they become, he becomes Adam and Eve. And then joined again to one in marriage. And so there's this, there's this beautiful creation story that takes place. And now the one who are actually two, but they've become one, are, are living together and walking with God. And God says, please don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat of anything else. And actually the invitation is to eat from the tree of life, because then you will participate and share in, the, in, my, in my divine and eternal story. That's the, that's the hope of God, is I have, I've created all of you so that I may live with you and you may live with me. So eat of the tree of life. Just don't eat of that tree. And what do we do in our human story? Because we don't like his truth, we like our truth, and our way leads to death, is we go and take from the wrong tree. And so in disobedience, sin enters the world, and brokenness comes, and death comes. And God, in his absolute compassion for us, doesn't allow us to die. He says, I can't let them now take from the tree of life and live for all eternity in this broken state. And so he moves Adam and Eve out the garden, and he puts angelic beings called cherubim at the entrance to the garden with flaming swords and says, you cannot come in here for your own safety. You cannot come in here. Because if you eat of the tree of life, your eternal is broken. And God in his compassion doesn't leave them on their own outside the garden. He says, I'm going to leave perfection. And I'm going to come in habitat with you. And in Exodus chapter 25, we see him say, build for me a tabernacle and I will be there with you. And the tabernacle is this incredible, it's, it's quite a difficult uh, scriptures to read because of the detail of it. But the essence is this, that God's presence is in the ark of the covenant. And over the ark on each side are two cherubim. And so it's a model to Israel to say, we've guarded the presence of God. The presence of God, the holiness of God cannot tolerate sin. And so these angelic beings, these representations on the Ark of the Covenant are what is guarding true life in the garden. And so the story continues. And then we see that uh, only the high priest is able to go in once a year with the blood of goats and sheep and all of that to, to get into that most holy place. But it was a dangerous place to get into the goodness of God. And so what had once been a cool walk with God in the garden, with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, walking with their father, had now become the most dangerous job in the world to enter into his holiness because of our brokenness. And then in comes Jesus. And he comes to this very night and it's dark outside. And inside, there is darkness in his soul. Not sin, but trouble. As it's now his time, and he knows what he's doing, because he is going to go through those cherubim, and he's going to go back to that tree of life, and he's going to eat of that tree of life, knowing that the only way through that is death, and therefore open the way for all of us to re-enter into God's holiness. And so in that moment of wrestle, in his own torment and in his own troubled soul, he speaks to the disciples as if almost also speaking to himself. And he's saying, do not let your hearts be troubled. Oh, my heart, do not be troubled. Because we know he then went to pray through the night. Do not let your heart be troubled. For I am the way, the truth, and the life. I've got to remind myself I am the life. 
And Jesus has that moment and he gets unfairly treated and, and crucified. And at that point in time, the disciples legitimately can ask, Jesus, you said you're the way, the truth, and the life, but your way has got you dead, not living. It seems like the Jews' truth trumped your truth at the trial. This has not gone down well. But Jesus had prepared them. He said, three days, wait, watch. And in those days of wrestle, Jesus goes to the cherubim, and he offers himself. He doesn't have to offer the blood of goats and bulls because he is sinless. And he goes, and he offers his own blood, and he goes through the cherubim, takes from the tree of life, and he reinstitutes the divine, eternal, being able to connect with humanity. And he opens the way, and he becomes the way because we can never stand. He doesn't just show us the way. He is the way because we can never, by our own blood, Walk into that most holy of holies because of our brokenness and sin. And so Jesus says, I can do that. And if you follow me and if you attach yourself to me and if your life is hidden in me, then you are able to walk in this path. And life becomes yours. And the invitation of God our Father, the design of God our Father, that there would be this divine, eternal uh, inheritance which becomes ours as humanity, which was God's intention, is suddenly reinstituted because of Jesus. And not in its broken state, but in its whole and healed state. And so Jesus is able to say, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Not religion, not the scriptures, not the prophets. I am, I and only I. Am. And if you know me, you know the Father. Philip, you don't have to ask that question. Just show us the Father and that will be enough for us. You know me and therefore you know the Father. Friends, sitting here, you don't have to say, I just want to see the Father. You know Jesus, you know the Father. I don't know the way. You do. It's Jesus Christ. He is the way. You know, what steps do I need to take? Just put your trust in Him. Hook your wagon to His. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Romans chapter 5, verses 17 says this, For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, that's death because of Adam's sin, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Friends, Jesus stands before us today as a man who confronts our own deficiency, but then also as a compassionate God, as the compassionate God. And he says, I don't mean just to show up your deficiencies, but I do mean to show you that in my compassion I have opened the way for you to come to have the life that was always intended for you, to share in, the, in God's eternal and divine nature. 
it is yours. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in the process, in the midst of it being dark on the outside and external pressures on the midst of the darkness in our own souls and our own spirits because of brokenness and sin, in the midst of all of that, do not let your hearts be troubled, friends. Do not let your hearts be troubled because the gracious and compassionate God who is slow to anger and abounding in love has paid that price to make the way. He is the way. He is the truth. And He gives us life. And He invites you to take hold of Him. I am. I am. The way, the truth, and the life.